Hello, welcome to another in the series of podcasts that we've made from the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice webinars. I'm Jan Orman. This webinar was called Move to Improve Physical Activity and Mental Health. If you'd like to watch the whole webinar and get some CPD points, you might prefer to go to the MPRAC page of the Black Dog Institute website. But if that sounds like too much trouble, stay with me for half an hour or so. Half an hour of chat about something that might just prove eye-opening for you. I had a stellar panel on the webinar. Dr. Roxanne Craig is a GP in Darwin with a special interest and qualifications in lifestyle medicine. Dr. Chris Kafer is a clinical psychologist, a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle and head of the development team for Black Dog Institute's psychology education programs. And Dr. Simon Rosenbaum, who is an exercise physiologist with a research interest at the intersection between physical activity and mental health. You might have noticed that I'm being very careful to say physical activity rather than exercise, and there's a reason for that. Apparently, the two are not the same. I asked Chris to start us off by defining the terms. I think it's a good place to start to say that we're talking about physical activity and not just exercise, that um, exercise is a subset of um, physical activity. And if we only talk about um, exercise, then often people have had really bad experiences with exercise and weight loss and um, are often unwilling to kind of hear about interventions because they feel like they're not going to be helpful to them. Whereas when we talk about uh, physical activity, we're just talking about um, moving more and sitting less, really. And um, the benefits of physical activity occur regardless of weight loss and the benefits of physical activity for mental health conditions are... um, uh, are, don't need the same level of activity that we need for cardiovascular fitness. So it's important just at the start to say we're talking about physical activity, not just exercise. Since Simon is our academic expert, I asked him to tell us about the evidence that suggests that physical activity is good for people with mental health problems. What I'm going to do now is just introduce everyone to the, the evidence around exercise and mental health and try and give a bit of an overview of where that field's at. Um, I should just say that you know, this field has really come a long way in the past 10 years or so. There's really been a huge amount of evidence um, around the, the, the benefits of exercise. And I'll sort of talk you through it here. I guess where the, this area sort of started was was looking at the physical health issues of people living with, with mental illness. And we know the, some of the statistics there's an 80% higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease. There's a higher risk of death due to cardiovascular disease. And this is premature preventable heart disease that's associated with mental illness. So these physical health comorbidities are are a huge issue and one of the reasons that we need to be looking at um, exercise. Now, of course, you know, we sort of talk about your your muscles don't care or your biceps don't care what your DSM diagnosis is. And that's a really important point. Your body's going to adapt the same way as as someone without a mental illness. And we know that whether it's depression or schizophrenia, we can improve fitness and improve physical health outcomes for people living with mental illness. Um, secondly, when we look at the, the, the effects of exercise and physical activity on mental health outcomes, and that there's really this overwhelming body of evidence at the moment. So where we're up to now is there's over, <coughs> excuse me, over 155 clinical trials across the spectrum of mental disorders, whether it's schizophrenia, depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD. We've got really strong evidence that when we add exercise to usual care, we can re- reduce symptoms and improve outcomes. So the evidence is very clear about when we add exercise to usual care. Now, treatment is one thing, but obviously prevention is even better. Um, And we do have some really good data now showing that if we intervene early, 
from the point of initiation of things like antipsychotic medication and as soon as someone comes in contact with a mental health service, if we intervene then with a physical health intervention, so things like exercise and diet, we can actually prevent the deterioration of, of, of poor physical health and, and, and potentially change the trajectory of, of the illness itself. Um, likewise, we have some really strong data now around preventing mental health issues and, and two big papers led by a friend and colleague of mine, Felipe Schuch. But one of them, you know, this is really important, showing that if we got the population moving by as little as 60 minutes more per week, and that's regardless of intensity, regardless of type, we could prevent somewhere between 12 to 17% of incident cases of depression. Simon's slides also mentioned that that same 60 minutes of increased physical activity each week had been shown to reduce the incidence of anxiety in the community by a huge 27%. Roxanne and I were both stunned by those figures. I'd say two-thirds of my patients would have mental health issues and so if we can cut that down, that's dramatic on a population level. This issue of the poor physical health of people with mental illness is such a, a key issue that it's recently we've had a Lancet Commission dedicated to this topic. Now, just to give a little bit of um, context, there's been 58 Lancet Commissions in total and these are on topics of broad international significance. So the fact that the Lancet has, has recognised the physical health of people with mental illness as, as, as important enough to have an entire commission on is really promising. Um, there were five sections to this commission and I'll just point out that one of them was around identifying the modifiable risk factors, um, looking at the interrelationship with medication and then proposing models of, of integrated care. But one of the key recommendations was around integrated care and actually ensuring that things like exercise and also dietetic interventions um, become a routine part of treatment. Simon has been walking the walk with integrated care. He was instrumental in establishing the new exercise physiology facility within the Black Dog Institute's own mood disorders clinic. This means patients referred for assessment and management of their mood disorders get a clear and immediate understanding of the link we see between their physical activity levels and their psychological well-being. It's been a real um, shift in terms of recognising how important physical activity interventions are. So the, the clinic has been there for a really long time and has always offered an opportunity for a really comprehensive assessment and treatment packages for people. And now this has been added in terms of having an assessment of someone's physical activity levels and also offering um, treatment alongside as seeing a psychiatrist and seeing a psychologist. So I think it really is modelling the way forward. Here's Simon again telling us a little more about his work with the Lancet Commission. Coming back to the, the, the Commission, there's really four key points that I'll just talk to here. The first is that we need to keep in mind that regardless of the diagnosis, uh, mental disorders are associated with a high risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and we found in the Commission up to two times higher compared to the general population. Um, these modifiable risk factors that are driving that disparity in, in outcomes, smoking, alcohol, sleep disturbance, physical inactivity is a huge one and also dietary risk factors as well. The key thing I want to highlight here is that these um, disparities and these modifiable risk factors occur from, from illness onset even beforehand. And what I mean by that is we've got good data showing that even people at high risk of experiencing mental illness already, they're, they're less likely to be active. Um, the diet's already um, uh, having poor dietary habits and, and sleep is already impaired. So what this means from an intervention perspective is that as soon as we see someone, as soon as someone comes in contact with a mental health service or puts their hand up and saying they need mental health care, we need to be providing physical health care at the same time and these sort of preventative lifestyle interventions as well. Um, so again, the recommendation was that these should be provided preemptively from the first point of the presentation. 
Um, acknowledging that it's hard to get the general population moving. You know, we know that about 60% of Australians are, are inactive, even without a mental illness. It's even more challenging to, to get people living with a mental illness active and, and actually facilitate that. Simon was keen to stress that the benefits of physical activity seen in the research are not restricted to people with severe and enduring mental health conditions, but are relevant across the whole spectrum of mental illness. We always put some polls in these webinars that allow us to see where our participants stand on the issues we're discussing. When we ask the participants what the greatest barrier for their inclusion of discussions about physical activity in their consultations, the overwhelming majority said the biggest problem was not time constraints as we expected, but patient disinterest. I asked Chris what she thought we could do about this. I think we need to change the direction of the conversation. I think the conversations have been about exercise and about weight loss and I think we just really need to change the conversation to uh, focusing on the issues that uh, the client's struggling with and how physical activity interventions can help with that, whether it be sleep, whether it be loneliness, whether it be depressed mood, whether it be anxiety, that physical activity interventions can really help across the board. So I think we have to change the conversation and also change the um, psychoeducation material that we're giving to patients to reflect that. So some tips for, for overcoming the barriers, I guess, is is looking into this yourself and um, looking at your own activity levels and looking at what some of the research says. Um, it, it's a little bit like teaching relaxation. If you don't practice it yourself, it's very hard to sort of teach it authentically. Um, and and I guess what really motivated me was the thought that with some of these patients that I'm slogging away with and not really getting anywhere, that this is a piece that could be added that really does change things and, and helps them. And so that's quite motivating, isn't it, for some of our patients that are perhaps that, that heart sink kind of feeling of what else can I offer this person. Chris had more useful advice about integrating discussions about physical activity into practice. For every patient or client in front of us, regardless of whether you're a psychologist or a GP, you need to be asking and assessing their, their level of physical activity and, um, and how sedentary their life is and assessing what sort of level that's at. We also then need to be working with where they are at and establishing what their baseline is and their level of interest and working from that point. For a lot of people, they'll be at a pre-contemplation stage where they've not even thought about it. And I think patient disinterest happens when we're launching into perhaps suggesting goals when they're not even on board yet. Mm -hmm. So assessing where they're at, um, matching the interventions to where they're at, and then looking at what are the resources that we can wrap around and support that person with because we know that it is this is quite a complex behaviour to change. We all struggle with it ourselves. And so this sort of intervention does need resources and expertise to, to make it more successful. I thought it might be useful to ask our panellists about how they went about assessing physical activity levels. I uh, tend to add it on in the first history taking, with so with a new patient after medical and social history going through the SNAP guidelines, which is asking about smoking, nutrition, alcohol and physical activity. I was taught to ask about how many times a week a person exercises and how many minutes each time and then multiplying those two to get a number, which was the figure. However, I find most people struggle to identify 
certainly general physical activity. So they may say, I go to the gym three times a week for an hour, but obviously they also do other things, which may be walking or hanging up washing or other activities that are still physical. So um, I normally just talk about what do they do? What are they interested in? Uh, do they walk? Do they swim? What are their areas of interest? And I jot that down for future reference and so ask just about that in follow-up visits. It just sounds like a, a conversation guided by the SNAP guidelines. That's do you right. do anything different from that, Chris? Uh, it probably comes up more when I'm assessing someone's routines and their, their habits, so sort of general questioning about how do they spend their time, what does a normal week or day look like, and I guess it then becomes part of the biopsychosocial case conceptualisation that, that you do where you're looking at the four Ps and often that lack of activity is a perpetuating fe uh, factor and that we can turn it into a protective factor for them. And um, I also like to, as a psychologist, I've got a bit more time in the consultation so I can explore their history of exercise, their kind of movement story and how they feel about their bodies. A lot of people have had really negative experiences earlier in life where they've been um, felt excluded or felt ashamed of their bodies and I think that that's an important thing to explore because I think that can really get in the way of any efforts to get them to start connecting and moving their bodies more. Simon mentioned a tool called the Simple Physical Activity Questionnaire that exercise physiologists use, but warned that though it takes the quality of assessment up a notch, it's a bit time-consuming and probably best left in the hands of the exercise professionals. I asked Simon what he thought the extra barriers to physical activity were for people with mental health problems. There's a range of barriers for the general population, but they, these are exacerbated or compounded for people living with mental illness. And we've got to take that into account when we're talking about this and not just assume that it's as easy as just telling someone, hey, go for a walk and you're going to feel better. So how can we as clinicians do things better? I guess, you know, we, we all have different sort of beliefs around the value of physical activity and the, the value of exercise. And, um, and that's worth exploring with a client or a patient to work out what you know, what do they think about it? Do they feel like it's only for, for young, thin, fit people who look good in lycra? Um, or, you know, have they had any sort of positive experiences in the past that you could possibly use? And and what's their understanding? Do they know what the latest research is about it? Because, I, you know, I suspect they probably um, don't, uh, that, that even a really small amount, even 10 minutes a day of, of moving more can make a difference. So just really assessing what their baseline is. And you're also trying to look at, what's their level of readiness for change because we don't as I said before want to launch into right you know start walking more when they're not even there yet and so I feel a lot of time is spent getting people to that point and trying to leverage off their concerns so if they're not sleeping well if they're socially isolated then talking about how um, moving more may help with that giving them really good psychoeducation materials to read and to investigate themselves and just encouraging um, inquiry and curiosity. So far we haven't heard very much about the National Physical Activity Guidelines. I wondered where they fitted in. Here's Roxanne. It's nice to have a framework, especially when you start getting into the field. Um, but equally in medicine, there's as much art as science. And I think a big part of the art is knowing when to say this is the guideline 
as opposed, which is 150 minutes a week or half that if it's intense activity. But that's way too overwhelming for someone that hasn't started exercising or mm-hmm. doing physical mm-hmm. activity. So that's not the place to start. The guidelines are hugely problematic for, for a number of reasons. One, they were developed based on cardiovascular outcomes, not on mental health outcomes. So they're not mental health informed at all. That is changing. But at the moment, the existing guidelines of 150 minutes a week, they're also problematic because they can actually act as more of a barrier as opposed to a motivator for people. If, if they think that unless they're going to achieve that 150 minutes, there's no point, they're not going to get any benefits. And of course, that's absolutely not true. The message we need to be sending is that something is better than nothing. Um, and, you know, if you're not doing anything, really, it's just about doing something. So yeah, the guidelines can be problematic. It's nice to know they're there, but really, we, we shouldn't be focusing on the guidelines at all. We talked at some length about what resources we might draw on to support people trying to increase their physical activity. Chris recommended getting to know some of the many community resources available all around Australia. The internet will guide you to organisations and activities in your local area. Think creatively. Anything that involves some level of physical activity fits the bill. Simon spoke about the place of monitoring devices like pedometers, Fitbits and smartwatches. We know that at a population level, these are really effective for about five days in terms of changing people's activity levels. And after that, the effect does wear off. But long term, these are really useful for giving people insight into how, particularly how sedentary they are. Um, and so we find that, that with our intervention and our studies that we run, they're really, really useful. People really value them and it teaches them a lot about their own activity habits and their own patterns. Um, it can also act as a prompt if, you know, you, you walk home and you realise that you just need an extra 100 or 200 steps to get to an even number. People might find they walk around the block so that they can be really useful. We also talked about some online resources that might be helpful. The My Compass Program's online goal-setting module might be useful, we thought, along with its mood-tracking facility that would easily allow plotting of mood against physical activity. There are also a number of potentially useful free exercise apps, including a yoga app called Down Dog that may have some appeal once the idea of physical activity is well established. I took the opportunity to ask Simon to solve one of life's little mysteries and to tell us what an exercise physiologist actually is and does and what makes them different from a personal trainer or a physiotherapist. An exercise physiologist is an an allied health practitioner. Um, So it's it's quite unique here in Australia. Essentially, they're they're health professionals that are trained in, in, in delivering supervised, individualized exercise programs but also behavioral change motivational counseling physical activity counseling um, to really provide suitable targeted exercise programs for people with chronic and complex conditions so one of the the questions that we get is what's the difference between an exercise physiologist and a personal trainer a a personal trainer typically works in a gym they're they're you have a certificate for qualification. Um, they're not allied health professionals and their scope of practice allows them to work with apparently healthy people. So really the, the AEPs have got, have got specialised skills and training in, in actually working specifically, with, for example, people living with, with mental illness and the barriers that they face. Physiotherapists can often be, be doing similar things around exercise prescription. Um, exercise physiologists here in Australia have got uh, training as part of the university program in mental health. It's one of the priority areas for, for exercise physiologists. Um, um, there's probably a bit more of a um, ex- focus within the exercise physiology training um, in mental health. They actually have to do hours in, in mental health placements. 
Um, an example of where EPs can be found is, is inpatient settings, community mental health services, but even, you know, on the spectrum of mental illness here at South East Sydney Local Health District in the, the mental health intensive care unit, we have an exercise physiologist as part of that team. Our governing organisation is Exercise Sports Science Australia, or ESSA, um, and if you go to essa.org.au, I think it is, um, there's find an exercise physiologist um, link and you can type in your area and your postcode and you can actually search for an EP in your area. There were a whole lot of learnings from the case study we discussed at the end of the webinar. Let me share some of them with you. First, most patients who have never been overweight do not see the value in exercise and need considerable education. Anxious people often avoid exercise because of the somatic symptoms that bear a strong resemblance to the feeling of panic. When you actually calculate activity levels, it's not uncommon to find that people are sedentary for 22 hours a day or even more. As practitioners, we need to think about the language we use and make sure we talk more about physical activity and not so much about exercise. The psychoeducation we do needs to match the concerns of the patient. For example, if they worry about their disturbed sleep, talk about how exercise can improve that. Exercise physiologists look at the whole person in terms of both their physical and mental health. They understand the value of resistance training in conditions such as diabetes, for example, and the personalised plans that they develop can encourage adherence. The best approach is to work together as a professional team. No matter what professional group we belong to, we can all play a role in this aspect of patient care. We just need to make more of an effort. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.